Namotasa Pakawatu Arhatu Sama Samputasa Namotasa Pakawatu Arhatu Sama Samputasa Namotasa Pakawatu Arhatu Sama Samputasa Uttang Dhammang Sankang Namasami Anyone have any ideas for me? <laughs> Anything that I could ponder on, think about, contemplate. All right, I'll just fire forth then, unless huh, you have something. What co- you have a question, huh? No, of course, um, you have a question. Yeah. I want to be relaxed. It's been difficult for both my mind and my body to be relaxed. Uh-huh. Do you have any advice or suggestions? All right. So I can spin that out for 45 minutes. <laughs> that would be impressive. Does everyone know the, a text called Visuddhimagga? Visuddhimagga is a commentarial text written by one great, uh, great master called Buddha Gosha in South India, near where Siddhartha comes from, and that would be what, 6th century, 7th, about 6th century AD, and it, it, it's a compilation of, based on Sila Samadhi Panya, based on ethics, morality, concentration, and wisdom, which are, which is a, a triad that you find a lot in Buddhism, kind of basic structure, uh, morality, ethics, or lifestyle, concentration, or meditation and uh, wisdom, insight, sila samadhi panya. So you see that in the text a lot, and it's a, the uh, Eightfold Path is based upon that, sila samadhi panya. And in that text, so Buddha Gosha apparently took together all the existing uh, texts that existed at that time and made this fantastic compilation of both the, from the suttas but also from the commentaries, what Theravada Buddhism saw as being the path up until that date. And a lot of the earlier texts have been lost, but Visuddhi Magga still exists. And it's uh, very much revered in Sri Lanka, a lot. And then in that, in that text, in the Samadhi section, there are, are a whole mess of ways of meditating. It's about 50 or so, like 52, something like that. One of the ways of meditation, obviously, using the breath, Others are contemplation of death. Uh, others are contemplation of, of images like called kasinas, discs of light, a blue light, a green light, a yellow light, a white light, where you, if you have good powers of visualization, people use that, where they take something like, say, they, they make a, a green disc and mount it to a wall. And then they focus on the green disc, they get the after image, they focus, they get the after image. Once they get the after image, they, they just hold the after image. Then they learn how to make it big and small, and they learn how to make it luminous. So that would take a lot of concentration. That's called Kasina meditation. And then there's meditations on, on qualities of the Buddha, qualities of Dharma, qualities of Sangha. There are meditations on the four Brahma-viharas, which are goodwill, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It's called the divine abidings. There are formless meditations. There are 
earth, water, fire, the four elements, meditations, and so on. So it's a whole raft of ideas that we have in Buddhism about how to meditate, or what kind of object to choose in meditation. There's one which I use a lot, which is called the Meditation on Peace. And uh, it's called Upasamanusati. Anusati is uh, recollection. So you have this word sati, which is mindfulness, and anusati is recollection. And what you have a lot in in uh, one of the methodologies of Theravada Buddhism is, is the capacity to recollect. And so when you're doing mindfulness of breathing, and what we were doing just now, you're, you're recollecting the breath, you're remembering the breath. When your mind wants to you think about what you're going to do tomorrow, and you remember, you recollect. So that sense of recollection is uh, very, very important. So whatever theme of, of meditation you take, you're not just trying to enforce your will by using an object of meditation. You're trying to recollect not just, also not just the object of meditation, but your whole attitude, your whole attitude to uh, how you're doing this. So right effort. And and that 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 sense of recollecting is is kind of like it's like remembering what you've learned. So all of us have learned. I was speaking about this the other day, but we've learned something. Right? We're much more informed about our minds than we were ten years ago. In fact, if if I function the way I did ten years ago, I'd be downright embarrassed. So you know, we have we have in us uh, not only an, an innate possibility of understanding, but we have a, a collection of understandings already. And these aren't just experience, they're like maturity, like, like the skill of a craft, right? Or the skill of a geophysicist or whatever, you know, whatever you have, we have, we have these things that we um, do, do well. Also, we have things which we don't do so well. So, even though we can sometimes recollect the wholesome Oftentimes, we inadvertently function from habit, from the unwholesome. And so we apply our attention to life, say in this case, in a way which somehow doesn't feel quite right. Uh, and those things are, 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 you know, they're very hard to get through and understand because they're so ingrained in us. So, so you've been meditating for a while, and there's some kind of tension there. You know, that's something that is very important. It's not minor. And somehow you need to kind of make conscious the very sense of tension rather than try to relax. If you try to relax, you get probably more tense. Because if you were already relaxed, you wouldn't be asking this. Right? So just that, just that attitude of making conscious the problem rather than trying to get rid of it. It's wisdom, isn't it? Where where the other is opinion, position, attachment to idea of what should be, and that's one of the big problems we have in in uh, in developing our minds. We have a kind of idealized sense of what I should be, what meditation should be, and maybe you've had experiences. You know, you've had experiences where you are very, very relaxed and open and very blissful, whatever, and then it becomes even more. I should be that. So there might be what should be from the texts, what should be what teachers tell you, what should be from 
what other meditators tell you, and what should be from your experience. But should be's are not reality. Should be's are should be's. <laughs> Sounds like an animal, doesn't it? <laughs> but the reality of the way things are needs to be made conscious, and that's the basic recollection which we're always involved in, the recollection of the way things are. It's like this. And that theme really is is kind of the beginning and the ending of Buddhism. Because when when you are with the way things are authentically and, and craving is not functioning, then your mind enters a very deep peace. And it begins with the way things are. So even if, if I'm really tense and confused or whatever, if I can say that to myself and understand what that what I'm saying to myself is like this, or how is it now, as a question, and then I can awaken to that, that's the first step in non-grasping you know, or non-attachment. Any words we use, attachment, non-attachment, uh, can be misused. You know, so so you, can, you can have the word non-attachment and then criticize yourself for some attachment you think you have, which is an attachment to the word non-attachment, right? So language is tricky. Language is tricky. So you also have a capacity to viscerally understand yourself, to use other sense bases to understand this moment or to know this moment, to be in this moment. And that's why it's very good to train yourself to uh, use other sense bases than thought to recollect the present moment. So I, I, I use sound a lot. Sounds great. Uh, even if it's a rotten sound, it's, it's very, very helpful because it's very, it's very receptive. You tend to listen to sound, right? And to establish presence by using another sense base than your body, like if you're feeling a lot of tension and so on, I would suggest you, you learn how to um, establish uh, presence by using something other than bodily tension. Because if you're trying to relax through bodily tension, that very effort probably is already infected by a desire to get rid of. And you don't see that, and that which you know is called vibhavatanha. So what I think we all need to do is we all, all need to train ourselves to come to a sense of presence without craving, without an agenda, without a desire to get something or get rid of something, and to use very neutral sense experience like sound is very helpful for that. So, so maybe when you meditate, forget about your meditation object and just listen. I just learn to listen and, and get a sense of presence without an agenda without any any program, without trying to relax, without trying to get the jhanas or get in, enlightened or all that nonsense. You know, just this straight-on presence. And recollect what presence is from that. What, what is presence? You're listening. Yeah, it's presence, simple enough. And so you get a... This is, this is the way I've always found it works. You, you get an insight or a sense of what the path is, and then you recollect that insight. This is the accumulation of wisdom that we have. So if we never have that basic understanding of what we're doing, then, of course, we're always missing the mark. So you have to always come home, as it were, come home to that. So you listen. Okay, that's presence. Make, make that your standard. Okay? And then whatever meditation you do, apply presence to that. And when you feel tension, right, apply presence to it rather than desire. And that's what you're going to have to figure out. That's what you're going to have to see in your own practice. The, 
uh, when tension arises, then what we often do is we, you know, we adjust or we try. You know, we're always kind of fidgeting with with the discomfort, but actually we sometimes don't make it conscious. So then, you, just as you can listen to sound, you can listen to discomfort. You know, let discomfort become conscious. Let it come up. Let it be be just as it is. What's discomfort like? So that's the, the first step. And then if you're, if you're tuned into that, you'll see the resistance to it or whatever. But going back to those themes of meditation, which I, which I spoke of, the recollection of peace is a very interesting one because it's the recollection of Nibbana. And you think the recollection of Nibbana, how can you recollect Nibbana when you, know, you ain't got it yet, right? I think we misunderstand what, what that word is pointing to. And so this, this meditation, Upasamanusati, I think it's called, um, is uh, very interesting because within the midst of your tension, there's also something which is not tense. Because if you, if you listen to the sound of the wind, and then you feel the tension in your body. You listen to the sound of the wind, you feel the tension in your body. There's something there that is changing, sense, uh, sense base, and the experience within each sense base. So if you listen to the wind, it's blowing sound. And if you feel your body, it's moving, it's hot. It's, uh, so there's movement and there's change. But if you toggle, if you move between those two, you'll notice there's something unchanging. And that's what we don't notice, because we're so caught up in the discomforts. But there is something unchanging, right? Otherwise, you, you couldn't know. You couldn't know that there is sound and there is bodily feeling if there was not something unchanging. If there was only bodily feeling and only sound, you'd have no way of knowing that. But you do. And that's consciousness or presence or awareness. And that's the contemplation of peace. Like, it's very, very interesting using something intense. I, I do this a lot. Like, if you feel really... It doesn't have to be emotional intensity. It can just be, a, like, a really strong sense experience. Let's say um, someone's running the lawnmower outside, right? And you're sitting here, and it's loud. So that's very intense. So if you listen to that, and you ask yourself, well, what's not sound? What's not intense? And that's the knowing. That's the awareness. That's always there. But we don't tend to notice it. Because we are caught with the discomfort and we want comfort. We're caught by the sound of the lawnmower and we don't want the sound of the lawnmower. Our attention is, is out into objects all the time. Our emotions, our, our ideas, our plans, all the self-narratives that we get so sucked into, right? The constant self-narratives. And yet there's something in you that knows your thinking. There's something in you, or in you, or is you, or I don't know this where language fails. There's something which is is you, maybe is closer, uh, which knows that. Now that... If you contemplate that knowing, that's the contemplation of peace. Because that's what, that's, what, that's what the words around Nibbana are pointing to, peace. And that's, that's the access is through that knowing. Now, if you're always trying to get comfortable, 
then you're always out in objects. So even if you get comfortable for one sitting, you know, next sitting is going to have the same problem. But if you no longer, your reference is no longer objects, but that which knows objects, then you begin to see what peace is about. Now the beauty of this is it can take place in any any kind of emotional, physical experience. You can, you can feel really lonely, and you can feel really uh, harmonious with life, disharmonious, but there's something always there which is bigger than all of that, and that's the knowing, that's the awareness. So in the, in the, in the contemplation of, of peace, in the Surimaga, it also suggests well, to also look at the other words that, that the Buddha recommended, or, uh, that we contemplate around that. And so you get that whole raft of language, the, uh, the un- unconditioned or the unmanifest or the island or the refuge or the harbor or the unconditioned. And these are, these are very strange words. But if you, if you apply each of those words to awareness, say something like unconditioned. Now is awareness conditioned? Sound is conditioned. You know, it's, and sound comes and goes. And you can't depend on sound because... Bodily is conditioned, you can't depend on the body. But can you depend on awareness? Well, you say, well, no, no, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm not aware. Is that true? Does awareness appear and disappear? Have you ever seen awareness appear? Like you can hear a sound appear. You can't. You can have a perception that I haven't been aware. You can do that. But to actually notice like awareness coming up like a sound and then dying like a sound, or a bodily feeling coming in, or an ice cream cone that you eat and you don't eat, eh? those things appear and disappear, they manifest. So one of the words we have around the uh, uh, transcendent, or uh, the peace, or peace is about, is the unmanifest. Now this awareness manifests, it doesn't, it knows, it always knows, it just knows. It's unmanifest, it's not conditioned, it's Another, another kind of language we use is when we talk about anicca when we talk about change, the deep contemplation of change is that all, all change in, in, in implies qualities. Uh, so you have like the quality of sound. It's coming and going, coming and going. The quality of bodily experience coming and going. The quality of food, the quality of, of memory, of, of emotion. And all of those, uh, what we call the five khandhas, have qualities. And they're good and they're bad or indifferent and beautiful and ugly and so on. And so then the contemplation around uh, nibbana or peace is qualityless. And that's not a kind of word you use much, but what's qualityless? Awareness. Does awareness have a quality? Does it like hot? Is it big? Is it female? Japanese? <laughs> It's not, is it? It knows. So it knows Japanese, you know, you, you are incarnate in a sort of Japanese cultural format, a woman format, and a however old format you are, but the knowing is not that old, it's not that gender, it's not that culture. It knows. Right? So it's qualityless. Another word, if we, if we contemplate dukkha, you know, we contemplate the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, if you contemplate dukkha, well, what we're pointing to is that all, all changing things are unreliable. You can't rely on them. You can't rely on the body for giving you pleasure, comfort. And you can't rely on the wind to be windy. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and you can't rely on people, right? You can't rely on your memory, that's for sure, and so on and so forth. So it's unreliable, so it's dukkha, it's unsatisfactory. It's okay, it's not bad, but it's, 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 you can't rely on it. So if you desire, if, if, you, if you have a mind which desires a certain kind of experience, you're in trouble. So then the contemplation of Nibbana is desirelessness. Now if you, aware, awareness doesn't have desire, awareness knows desire. If you feel thirsty, you know desire. If you feel hot, you know you want to be cool, sure. But awareness doesn't have desire in it. It knows desire, it's desirelessness. So if you bring that word up, desirelessness, around your discomfort. So now you start to use that kind of language around your very, you know, the predicament you have is, is that you feel tension and so on. So make conscious, we still make conscious. Bring presence into it. Listen to sound. Feel your body. Give you a sense of receptive awareness. And then put in desirelessness. Pop that word in. And that quite often becomes a mirror for your desire to be free from tension. Why should you be free from tension? Hmm? Why not why not have tension the rest of your life? It'd be a lot easier. Try that one. Try, try, okay, it's all right, I'll just be tense the rest of my life. Don't like that. <laughs> it's not, you know, I'm here to not have tension. You know, my, my meditation should make me relax and da-da-da-da-da. What if you didn't do that? What if you just said desirelessness? And then you, you're fully conscious to tension. And what would happen then? I don't know, but it's worth, it's worth exploring because what you're contemplating then is peace. And peace is not relaxed. Peace knows relaxed. Peace knows unrelaxed. Relaxed is a quality. Unrelaxed is a quality. It is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quantifier. But peace is not quantified. It can't, it's not quantifiable. It knows. So you, <laughs> I hope you do get comfortable. <laughs> you know, I don't wish you a lifetime of tension. <laughs> but but you're, you're, you're shifting your mind away now from the objects to the objectless. So the third in that in that contemplation of anicca dukkha anatta is anatta. And so if you if you you know watch all this and take it personally, oh my body, you know, God, you know I'm not getting anywhere in my meditation. You know that's all self. But that's that can be known as an object. You know the sense of I, the sense of a person, can be known as an object. You can see it. Say I'm I'm great. I'm hopeless. I'm better than him. She's better than me. It's all thought, isn't it? Comparison, self-judgment. I'm not, you know, my meditation is horrible, and I'm horrible, and so are you, and <laughs> whatever, whatever way you manifest that, right? It's still, it's just thought. That's all it is. So then we have from the contemplation of anatta, we have the contemplation of emptiness, and that's one of the words we apply to the transcendent. Is it's empty, not empty in some kind of nihilistic vacuum, but rather empty of a sense of a person. And this, does, is awareness personal? You say, I am aware. Well, if you, if you say the I am aware, yeah, but it just awareness, is it? can you say it's like a viradhamma awareness? Kind of old man, monkish kind of awareness? <laughs> and is, is, is that different than 
an Ajahn Sumedho awareness, which must be much better, <laughs> and an Ajahn Chah awareness must be, whoo, that's the yellow. But is it? You know, this awareness is not, it's, it's, it's empty of a personal property, a sad personality. So this, this, <laughs> this is all around tension. <laughs> so there's a way of actually like um, beginning to incline your mind to the unconditioned rather than always trying to fix conditions. And that's one of the problems we have is we're always trying to get it right. But if you just think to yourself, well, it'll never be right. What a relief. <laughs> you know, always be messy and sloppy and, you know, there'll be emotions. And... But awareness doesn't require that it's all right. Awareness knows. That's why I consider Buddhism a religion, not not in a kind of institutional way, but it has religio. It has the idea of linking or uh, linking yourself back to some kind of transcendent realization, and that's what we're doing in Buddhism. We're not we're not just trying to calm the mind for the sake of being more calm in the kitchen and making a better salad. You know, I, I appreciate that, <laughs> but there's there's a, a much deeper ethos to this, and that's that the Buddha realized something which was not dependent, which not causally conditioned. Was not born, did not die. The unconditioned, the unborn, the unoriginated, unborn, does you know? Can you watch now for the next week? You tell me if you see awareness manifest. You won't. It does not manifest. It is. Everything else does. Everything else does. Huh? Because if if awareness manifested, there'd be have to, something have to be aware of awareness manifesting, right? Doesn't have to work that way. So you you, you know this is a contemplation of peace, not not in opposition to non-peace, because anything which is dualistic can't cannot be what, what the teaching's pointing to. But it's that which is behind all experience, which is actually very, very peaceful, but not in a dualistic sense. Any questions around that? When you're sitting here, your mind is often thought and completely unaware. Isn't that when it's going away? And then you remember and it comes back. You assume time. When you remember, you assume that you were a person lost in time. You create self. You assume that. So the sense of self gets lost. And you assume you're a sense of self. It's very, it's very, uh, that's a very difficult one to ponder. You, you know, when, when you, okay, so you're meditating and your mind goes back to Calgary and work and such like and, and the tension is there and so on. Have you ever been absent? There's always been a presence. The sense of self is, the, the thing about the sense of self, there's an assumption of a permanent sense of a self so that I am someone who was not present. But actually, that's an assumption that creates that sense of time. The, the awareness is that, you know, we call akalika dhamma. Not a matter of time, not born, not dying. So I would I would suggest next time you awaken to the feeling that you have not been here, challenge that. Because that creates a sense of self. A me having to meditate more strongly. Right there, challenge a sense of time. Now, I am someone who wasn't aware. That'll take you to the unconditioned. The other will take you into me having to meditate more strongly in time and self. So sense of self is born there. 
Did you have, yeah, you had a question? Yes. Uh, so if you apply the same thing that you were talking about to other things like anger, mm -hmm. um, the problem is that there's always the physical feeling that's not bearable. It's not bearable. Well, and you're in trouble. But you still bear it, don't you? <laughs> and then because you're being a rabbit, you, you feel it more. But, mm -hmm. but if you catch it early, it's like if you're aware of it early enough, then you see that it doesn't trouble you that much. Like it arises and then it passes away. But if you don't catch it early enough and feel the physical pain associated with certain things like anger, attention, then how do you be with it? Like, If you go to the awareness, it'll take care of itself. Well, what, what we do first is we, we, you know, we look at the physical feeling of awareness, of, of anger, because it's so compelling and so strong and so demanding of our attention, we kind of have no choice. And we bear witness to it, we don't add to it, and it's, it's, it's intensity and it's propensity to arise often gets less and less and less. Right? So that's, we all begin that way. But at some point, the intensity of the awareness is not there, uh, of the anger is not there anymore. You know, it becomes much, much more, you know, the amplitude is much less, and the intensity is less, and the volume is less, and the, and the frequency is less. And then you, you start to, to be able to do these other things. So when I, when I started meditation, I just had rage. You know, there was no choice. I just had to walk back and forth and swear vigorously for a while to, to release some. So there is catharsis, certainly there is that. But that's, you know, that's sort of just the beginning. Just the beginning. But once you, once you start to really understand greed, hatred, and delusion, and you understand how you get, how you get drawn into it, you begin, you begin to be interested in the unconditioned. So we always recommend, like with any emotional experience, learn to, learn to reference it in the body. And then it'll run its course according to its karma. So if, if I have a strong tendency towards anger because of childhood things or whatever it is, or genetics or whatever, then certainly I'll have to bear the consequences of that. It'll come up a lot. And non-grasping just means don't make it a problem and witness it. But this way of practice, would, it works brilliantly. Because the, the problem with these emotions is we think it's a problem. <laughs> and then, you know, we get very much caught up, I shouldn't be angry, I should do metta. Yeah, but that idiot, I'm going to kill him. And then, you know, you, you kind of bounce back and forth between the sense of I, of your idealist sense of being a good Buddhist and the reality of wanting to strangle someone. <laughs> you move between these two. And, and that movement is very oftentimes a sense of me being wrong for feeling the anger. Or what am I going to do about it? Or how can I fix it? Or maybe I go to a therapist. You know, that kind of thing, right? But actually, actually, once it comes up, you just have to bear with it. You have to be very, very patient. Feel it in the body until it runs its course. If you have a choice, and you can be in environments which, where the anger is not stimulated so strongly, go for it. So that's why we build monasteries. But there's a bit of anger in monasteries too sometimes. So it ain't it ain't guaranteed. So, <laughs> but but you know, having said that, realize that anger is not a problem. It's a condition. Sense of self is the problem. 
attachment to the problem, and that comes up in thought, spins around like yeah. Let, let you know, think about how you when when if you've been if you're at work and someone insults you, you know, publicly humiliates you in a meeting or something, some horrible creepy person, and you go home, what happens? You, it just rifles through your head. You know, you you know you plot how you're going to dynamite their car. And then you feel guilty about that, and then you think, well, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to say that, and I'm going to say, you're not aware of anger, you are angry. You know, that's, whereas awareness of anger gets below the thinking level. So that's why, you know, the, the, the importance of, like, knowing yourself from here down, rather than from just, from the thinking, always just through thought. So then, like, something like a strong emotion, it becomes a, a, a something you investigate. What is anger, really? What is it in the body? What is it like as a heat element? So you become aware of anger as, as, you know, as a condition. And then again, once you understand anger, you, you know what to do. Basically, not, you know what non-grasping is. If you find your mind's moving towards hatred, then you do metta bhavana. You know, may, may, I, may I be well, may they be well. No, may they not be well. No, 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 that's, <laughs> that's hatred. You know, when your mind... But anger is different than hatred, isn't it? Anger is just a kind of volatile energy of getting messed about by life. Whereas hatred is the kind of deliberate intention to do someone harm. And that's, I think, important to differentiate. You know, because quite often we feel, we'll feel anger and, and, and we'll feel guilty about it. But why? I, I, don't, I don't really want to harm anyone. It's just that I'm pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. So, but they wanting to harm someone and, you know, gossiping about them and figuring out how you're going to say something to make them look embarrassed or how are you going to tell the boss so that they get, messed, you know, that's hatred. That's plotting things to hurt someone. So that's important to, you know, to notice the difference. So if you do like lots of metabhavana and then you start to just feel your heart, get, get like really get good at knowing this area of your body and then know it when, when it's in, 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 in the mode of kindness when, when someone is really good to you, when, when uh, you're kind to someone else, when someone is gentle with you, when someone is considerate to you, feel how that opens right? and then feel how it when someone stabs you know the difference, but live here and if you live here more here then as you get hurt you process it real quick it just goes through, you feel it, goes through you, and you don't have any residue. Well, one of the things to, to look at in your practice is how long do the echoes last? The echoes of the day, do they like spin up for a week? Are they in my, in my evening for hours? Then you know, okay, somehow there's some kind of attachment here I'm just reacting to. I've got to be more aware in the moment. So at home I can process things, but then in, in the moment. So how do you be aware in the moment? Is you you learn how to receive life in in a bodily way rather than just an intellectual way. And if you, if you see life in a bodily way, if it's tense, you feel it, you hold it, and it goes, and you don't have all that rubbish to sort through. But if you hold it in thought, whoa, man, you can spin it around for weeks, can't you? Man? So learning to to understand yourself as a, as a physical, energetic being, as well as an intellectual being. And that's an understanding and an, a, a viewing and a witnessing. So what I was speaking to is more kind of like when you've 
kind of work through that, like, like the intense emotions that we have, then then life is much much less uh, much less of the sine curve, you know, just more more like that. And then we can still preoccupy. So I'm just suggesting stop the preoccupation with the khandas and and move directly to peace. That's you know, that's why I was suggesting that. But certainly all of us have come, right? You know, we have we have buttons to get pressed, and they're very important to, to see that they are the source of liberation. Anger is not a problem. It's 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 your pathway to liberation. If you don't see it that way, then you always think, well, if I if I wasn't angry, I could meditate, or if this creep wasn't in my life, I could you know I'd be happy. But actually, the anger has a potential which needs to be understood, processed. And that is, that's the gate, that's the funny, it's the gateway to peace, is that very horrible stuff that we have as human beings. Because what happens is not only do you process and purify the heart from anger, in this case, you also strengthen awareness. And to be aware of unbearable pain, say, uh, you have to bear with it. And as you bear with it, what do you do? You strengthen awareness. And then you realize that, that awareness was always there. I'm going to rely on that rather than my emotions. And you, 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 your attention becomes more and more interested in that. It's more and more interesting rather than emotional life. Emotional life, boring. It's going up and down, doing something. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, love is beautiful and, and compassion and so on, but we're, we're, we're pin cushions. They were such suckers. You know, people just think, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's being human. It happens. So if you always think, you know, like somehow I'm going to get to the stage in my meditation where I'm just like Joe Cool and nothing happens, then you get really disappointed. But if you bring your attention more to the unconditioned, well, then disappointment is just another condition. So that's why I'm suggesting. I think I suggest this because so much of modern, of modern Buddhism is very much a self-help thing. You know, I want to relieve my stress and, you know, do my job better at work and make better widgets and so on, which is okay. But the Buddha, Buddha, Buddha wasn't into stress reduction, right? I don't think he was stressed out either. So, you know, his realization was very, very profound. And, and there's a sort of, sometimes there's a, a demeaning of Buddhism, a lessening of, of the Buddha's uh, teaching. Like one person I heard said that the Buddha was the best therapist or something. Oh, come on. As if it's just sort of some kind of psychotherapy to make you feel better. But there is this realization the Buddha points to, and, and it's not beyond us. It's just we're just, you know, we're kind of looking in the wrong place. That's why I make that suggestion of like turning attention back to awareness itself. All right, I'll leave that for your reflection tonight. Andamayang Dhamakataya Sadukarang Dadamase Sadu 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 Sadu